<laughs> All right, hey, so that clip there, if, if it looks somewhat familiar, whether you heard it or not. Uh, this is Buddy the Elf uh, from the greatest Christmas movie ever told, uh, Elf. And Elf, he walks in the street. He gets hit by a car. You can't hear it from the lack of audio. But then he goes, sorry. <laughs> now, Buddy the Elf is an Enneagram 9. Uh, if I have ever seen one. And how do I know? Because I am one. Um, he gets hit by a car, and he apologizes to the car. <laughs> uh, I think another example, this one has no sound. This is just a picture. Another example of nines I think is best explained in this image. Um, and so nines explaining how they solve problems. Uh, let me see if I can't read it from back there. One time... My refrigerator stopped working. I didn't know what to do. I just moved. <laughs> that, to me, is a picture of how Enneagram 9s work. <laughs> Any sort of conflict, I got to move. <laughs> just, I don't know what to do. This, this is Enneagram 9s. Uh, we, we have our strengths. Uh, we, definitely, we definitely see the good in, in, in almost everybody. We want to, we want to see that. We, we live at peace with one another um, as, as much as possible. But as we said earlier in our, in our liturgy, am I peacemaking or peacekeeping? Um, a, a new friend asked me that question about a week ago, and it's just wrecked me. Am I peacemaking or peacekeeping? And, and whether you're an Enneagram 9 or not, whether you even know what Enneagram or any social tests are, and whether you think they're from the devil or not, every single one of us, at least in some level, struggles with being a people pleaser. Because we all desperately, deep down, want people to love us. We want people to like us and to accept us as we are. And some of us are willing to do almost anything to achieve that. Today, I want to talk to you about how to handle hate. How to handle hate. Because as funny as those two illustrations were, or at least I hope they were going to be, there was another time when, when people-pleasing actually led to death. When the crowds came to Pilate and demanded that he release Barabbas, a known criminal, he had to decide, do these people own me? Do they own me? They are going to crucify, they're going to lynch this innocent man, this God-man, Jesus Christ. And so do they own me or do I stand up to the hate? Do I actually take a stand? And so handling hate could mean life or death to somebody. How you handle hate could mean life or death to somebody. And so today, I want to ask you three questions. Are you hated? Are you hurting? And how can you heal? Are you hated? Are you hurting? And how can you heal? And so the first question, are you hated? It's a very simple question. Do people hate you? Are you, are you agitated towards people? Do you agitate them? Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he assumes they will be hated. Verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. And so the assumption is the world will hate you. 
Because something so radical has happened to you that the very life of heaven has come into your hearts, into your souls, and has brought your heart from death to life. And in that moment, you will alienate people. You're such a radically different person that it will change how you act around people. That you go from death to life. And so where you call home has changed. Who you want to please has changed. And who you follow has changed. If the world hates you, Jesus is saying, keep in mind, it hated me too. And so welcome to the club. (laughs) Thanks, Jesus. Appreciate that. This is what happens when you become a Christian. You have an influence from outside, outside of these groups. And so the world can't pin you down anymore. The world starts to realize they don't own you. Before they they thought you were one of us, before they thought you were a company guy, a company girl, but if you're a Christian, the world will soon be uncomfortable around you because they'll soon see that they have no grasp on you. That your values are not only their values, your values come from outside of that group. And so last week Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? Right? That I'm the vine, you're the branches. And so what Jesus is saying is, I've cut your roots to that old system. I've cut your roots to that so you no longer belong to that. I've cut your roots to that political party. That's not what defines you. I do. I've cut your roots to your class, whether you're from the lower, the middle, or the higher. I've cut your roots so that you can walk into any of these classes. You're not beholden to only one of these. But some of you may start to ask, like, but How? How does being a Christian actually put us at odds with the world? It seems like we have a pretty um, favorable message to people. Well, the only way to tell someone that they need Jesus is to tell them that they're weak and that they're sinful and that their sins demand justice and that they're dying without Jesus. Like, yes, you want to you lead with Jesus loves you. And you want to to tell that, that, that Jesus brings equity and justice, but you also need to say that he sets you free from bondage. And bondage to what? Bondage to your slavery of sin. And so this isn't a very popular message. And the ultimate reason that the world hates Jesus is that he testifies that the world's deeds are evil. It is very much in contrast with the world. The world's deeds are evil, and those evil deeds come out when reports of abuse or neglect by a coworker are just brushed under the rug. When when we task teachers to educate, to parent, to mentor, and now to be armed commandos to our students, it's evil. In Flint, Michigan, the water is so polluted that a whole city is feeling the effects of the dangerous amounts of lead all to save money. And Jesus will say that that is evil. And it testifies that the world's deeds are evil. Malcolm's love of these Latin theologians these last couple months, you've probably heard of these things, um, has started to rub off on me um, with this guy, John Sabrino. And he, he, is beautif- he beautifully writes this, uh, building the kingdom means destroying the anti-kingdom. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Saving human beings means liberating them from their slaveries. And so building the kingdom means destroying the anti-kingdom. The kingdom of God should stand in direct conflict with the kingdom of this world, which we shouldn't say that we are so married to this world that everything's fine. Like he, sa- he goes on to say, those who carry out purely beneficial activities 
are not persecuted, which means that they have not struggled against the anti-kingdom, and this in turn means that their activities are not, strictly speaking, signs of the kingdom. (laughs) What is he saying there? He's saying that niceness is not advancing the kingdom of God. He's saying that direct acts of kindness that are in opposition to the anti-kingdom creates that conflict, and that is the advancement of the kingdom. Like, it makes me think of Harriet Tubman leading the Underground Railroad in direct opposition, breaking the law to do so, right? It makes me think of Martin Luther King Jr., who planned marches for freedom and justice, not just for freedom and justice marches to be seen what he's doing. He did it when he was told not to do it, when he was told that if he did march, violence would ensue, And so you are now becoming a disturber of the peace. And Martin Luther King said, great, let's go disturb that peace. Because right now, that peace is killing a group of people that have been marginalized for hundreds of years. And so let's bring it to today. If you're a doctor, how how does it change you knowing that Jesus is Lord and that kingdom is breaking in even into your practice? How does that change you? Do you have pressures from the outside that decenter your patience? If you're a teacher and you're told to erase history out of love for your students, do you still teach them the good, the bad, the beautiful, and the ugly of our history, even if someone says, you're teaching CRT, and you say, I'm just teaching history? Do you still go for it? If you work in law, how might you lovingly, radically defend the rights of the most vulnerable? Not pushing plea deals but demanding fair sentencing. If you're at the bottom of the totem pole and you you think, I have no power, how does being an agent of this kingdom react in that situation? Fearing that you'll always be at the bottom of the totem pole. What does that look like? And so the question I want to ask for us today is, are we just content being peacekeepers? Or has Jesus called us to be peacemakers? Verse 19 says, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. If you belong to the world, it would love you. Does the world love you? Are we so comfortable with the world that we feel like we are good? There is no conflict. There is no tension. And so have we sacrificed our integrity as Christians here? Verse 19 goes on and says, As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. He doesn't even assume it anymore. He's making a a declaration. The world does hate you because we fight against the anti-kingdom. And maybe you're like, I don't really like these Latin theologians. That's a problem. We'll talk about that later. We'll come back to that. But let me give you Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, He says, This category, that of a criminal, helps further establish the impossibility of combining Christianity with anything like a bourgeois life or a position of power within any given human society. Here it is. The true Christian is always seen as a criminal. (laughs) The true Christian is always seen as a criminal. One commentator on what Kierkegaard wrote here says it this way, the concrete test of whether or not one has lived in full imitation of Christ, one simply asks the question, am I in jail or not? (laughs) Well, there you go. 
That's your test. Am I in jail or not? Have we been sent to jail or to prison because we contended for the faith? Isn't this wild? This is almost too radical. It makes you feel a little uncomfortable. Am I willing to stand up for something that is so fundamental to who Christ is, and I've, I've, I've now brought that into who I am because Christ lives in me, that I'm willing to go to prison for my faith. I'm willing to get into good trouble, as John Lewis says. This isn't just some random theologians. You can just exclude the Latin theologian, the Danish theologians. Go back to Luke 6, Jesus himself. Luke 6, 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, some of you are like, don't have a problem there. (laughs) I got many people who do not speak well of me. Thank you, Jesus. I am good. Uh, That is a wild phrase coming from Jesus. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Uh, (laughs) Like... People-pleasing is killing our courage and our convictions. And so application number one is let's become criminals. Okay, uh, point two. First, are you hated? Second point, and Jesus assumes that you're going to become a criminal. The second point is, are you hurting? And this one really needs to come very quickly after that first point because we could get into some some different types of trouble. It's a crucial follow-up question here because here's why. The world's worst monsters believed that what they were doing was good, right, and true. So are you hurting those who hate you? Are you emboldened by their hate and that you have become the monster? This is an important question for us to consider because it's so easy for us to become so emboldened that only we have the truth that only we see it rightly, and that we become justified in what we're doing. And every day, normal human beings do this all the time. Every day, normal human beings use the ends to justify the means. And that's what happens when you forcibly take land from the Native Americans. That's what happens when when the Christians baptized slaves and then made sure in their baptism pronouncement that they knew that they were not truly free. It's evil. And so are you hurting the people who hate you? Is there hatred stemming from something evil we are doing? Is an important question for us to consider. Because the temptation in our day is to feel noble when we are hated. It's to go, they're haters, they're trolls, I don't want to listen to what they have to say. And there are haters, there are trolls out there. And sometimes you just have to turn off social media, Right? But the temptation is to always say, everyone else is the villain. I'm innocent. And so whatever our position is, like whatever hill that you are so passionate about that you want to die on, I want you to ask this very, very important question. Something that you you just believe so deep down. I want you to ask this very important question. What if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? Truth will prevail. It's okay to ask that question. But what if I'm wrong? Like, what if my team, the Astros, are wrong? (laughs) They were. (laughs) But, But what if my church? What if my my party? What if my country is wrong? Like, what if 
We're not the good guys. What if we've been contributing to some of this evil that we've been, we've been blasting against? Like, what if we're a part of the problem? And that's when this verse in 16.2 has just disheartened me, and it's, it's been so sad to read it in here, but it also explains so much. In verse 2 of chapter 16, Jesus says, They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. And so what he's saying is that the greatest threat to Christians in this time is those who are claiming Christianity. It's those who are claiming they're doing God's work. J.S. Park, an Asian American chaplain, wrote, Not once did an atheist or a leftist liberal make me doubt my faith. Only two things did that. Suffering and the church. And a lot of that suffering came from the church. Does that resonate? Some of that resonates too deeply. Diane Langberg, a leading Christian psychologist who works with victims of trauma, um, spoke that religious trauma as being one of the most destructive and emotionally violent forms of trauma. Why are we talking about this? Is we're talking about this because we're talking about church hurt. And church hurt hits different. It's, it, it hits different because it's not just you lost where you're going to worship, as you know. You've lost friends. You've lost community. You've lost faith in church leaders. And at times you start going, do I even trust God? Church hurt hits very, very different. Because many of us wonder, like, can we even trust the church? I mean, we, we, we see it in regardless of denomination, every single church, regardless of safeguards that are in systems that are put into place, abuse seems to reign. And when you see it over and over and over and over and over again, you start to wonder, is this church? Is this just what happens in church? Is, should we just expect this? And verse 2 says, when you speak up about these abuses, they will excommunicate you for it. And they will think they're doing the Lord's work. And so I just want to say, if you've been hurt by the church, if you, if you come here this morning, you have been hurt by the church, I'm one of the first things I want to tell you is, I believe you. So many times we, we, we get gaslit into wondering, is it me? And I don't even know if it's real. I'm going to say, I believe you. It's real. And I'm sorry. Maybe you've been asked to leave the church. Maybe you weren't asked to leave, but you couldn't stay in good conscience. And so you now have every reason to put up all these safeguards to protect yourself from church. And, to, and you have all these reasons to just not trust anyone. And I, my, our hope and prayer is that Mosaic can be a place of healing for you. But I know that you will not trust us. You will not trust me. You will not trust the leadership. Because trust is earned. And so we just hope and pray that we can earn your trust over however long you are with us. We want to do that out of love for you. To, to, to reveal who the true God is. Diane Langberg also famously said, I think 
a look at suffering humanity would lead to the realization that trauma is perhaps the greatest mission field of the 20th century. (sighs) Trauma is the greatest mission field of the 20th century. Like responding to trauma, and most of the times, the trauma that's been caused in the church or in the mission field, like, uh, like trauma therapists are a gift right now. We're thankful for you. And so whether it was Saul who, who thought he was doing the Lord's work and, and was killing Christians in the name of the Lord, or whether it was the church who was burning Archbishop Cranmer with a sermon in the background, or whether it's, it's the Crusades, or whether it was Christians stealing land from the Native Americans, or these sermons justifying slavery, some are still happening today, or whether it's us seeing Christians who've wedded themselves so much with Christian nationalism as we see on display with the January 6th hearings, what we are seeing, we have, to act, we have to ask ourselves, what if our system, what if our church, what if, what, what if our group is wrong? Are we willing to step out from that group and be alienated from that group? To be, to be separate from that? Are we willing to look critically even at our own groups? Even those groups that are... You say, they're doing so good, but they're hurting so many people. What if we're hurting people emboldened by their hatred? What then? And that's when we ask this last question, how can you heal? And that's the question that all of us are really here for, is how do we heal? How can we heal? How can you heal when the world hates you? And let me just give it to you real quick here, real straight. How do you heal? Endure suffering we have a slide up here. How do you heal? You endure suffering without avoiding it, without enjoying it, and without being surprised by it. Endure suffering without avoiding it, without enjoying it, and without being surprised by it. Without, without avoiding it is really important because as we talked about earlier, um, if we don't do that, then we live as peacekeepers, not peacemakers, but also without enjoying it. And that's what happens when we create this sadistic relationship with suffering and we use everything as ammunition to use against our enemies and that starts to distort our own soul. But lastly, and this is the point of this, this last section here, is to not be surprised by it. This whole passage is written as Jesus is writing to his disciples, speaking to his disciples and saying, take heart. 16.1 is is giving you the the picture of all that's why this is said. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. All this I've told you so that you will not fall away. Because I know that as you look at the church and all the abuse that happens, it's going to make you wonder... Is God real? Or are these just selfish charlatans? Is God real? And Jesus is saying to his disciples there, take heart, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that you don't fall away. It doesn't, it doesn't make it okay, but th- I want you to see here that this hurt has happened even in the earliest churches. I mean, think about it. All of those early churches, none of them survived. Because of all the trauma and all the abuse and all the stuff that happens in there. And yet the church survives. That God still works through, the, through people, the actual church, irregardless of individual churches. And so Jesus prepares them so that they will not be shocked or discouraged when their starry-eyed optimism comes crashing down. 
And he prepares you and me for this as well. Don't be surprised. Verse 20 says, Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. This verse he's referring back to, he says, Remember when I said this, he's referring back to when he talks about a servant is not greater than the master, and so wash each other's feet. And so if, if Jesus is washing your feet, go wash others. And the same thing is happening here. He's saying, And if I'm persecuted, you're in good company. You're going to be persecuted as well. Uh, and we're not talking about persecution for, like, fake persecution for, like, not, have, not you know, having to go maskless or some, something like that. Um, what this persecution is, remember that verse earlier where it says, like, woe to you when all the world speaks well of you? And you're like, good, I'll just go start going around making everybody angry. <laughs> Thank you for this application, Jesus. The verse right after that in Luke 6 says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. (laughs) Uh, He's saying, dumbfound your enemies with love. (laughs) Irritate and confuse them with grace. Uh, have you ever seen this play out before? You see someone respond to such evil and hatred with love and their people are shocked by it? Charles Spurgeon quipped this. He says, kindness is our revenge. And so goodness is heaping hot coals on their head and finding a way to do it in love. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> but here's the good news. Your efforts are not alone. You are not in this alone. Because take heart, you won't be alone when the persecution comes. Verse 26, when the advocate, who's the Holy Spirit, we've talked about him, comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And I want us to see this. Too many times what we think is that the Spirit helps us testify helps us spread the gospel, helps us heal, helps us do the work, helps us become these great missionaries. And what I want us to see is that is what creates toxic missionaries who think that the spirit is like the auxiliary motor that comes on when we need a break. We think it's all us. Spirit, help me do all the work, but I'm the one doing the work. And what Scripture is very clear about, the Gospels repeatedly affirms, is that it's all God's work, and He is primary, we are secondary. And so, no, the church is not the hope of the world. The Spirit of God is. We see that? Yes, the Spirit usually works through the church, but given church history, what's clear is that the Spirit works in spite of the church. Hallelujah! Right? The Spirit works in spite of us. God is at work all the time. Praise God that the Spirit works in spite of flawed leadership, in spite of flawed flawed systems. Now, don't hear me excusing what those systems have done because sometimes the Spirit starts to work against those systems and against churches. The Spirit does that. How do we handle the hate? Two temptations that come up when when you feel the hatred. Two temptations are pride, and despair. Pride and despair. When hateful criticisms, when hateful comments, when hateful screenshots or emails come your way, when your job is in jeopardy, when you're seen as a criminal, the two temptations when hate comes your way is pride and despair. And so how do you handle hate 
in that moment. In these moments, I want you to remember this. I am saved by sheer grace alone. I am saved by sheer grace alone. I mean, the world has to think that Christians are arrogant, right? The world has to think that we're arrogant because we're saying, very, it sounds very judgmental that you need Jesus. It sounds very arrogant. But if we believe that we are saved by grace and grace alone, that, that kills any shred of superiority or arrogance that we have. That you need Jesus, but I, I need Jesus. Like, it kills any shred of superiority, but it also kills that despair as well. That I am saved by grace alone. <laughs> and that grace means that you are never, ever, ever alone. I mean, think about this. In the times when you, are, when you feel the most beat up and the times you feel the most beat down and you start to wonder, does the Lord hate me? Is there a God? These are the times I want you to remember that you are not alone. Because in fact, those harsh criticisms that you receive and that the laughter that's coming at you, remember that happened to Jesus too. And that he didn't just receive harsh criticisms and laughter at him. He has borne all the traumas forever. Like, he, he's borne all the atrocities to ever hit this earth. He's borne the Rwandan massacres. He's borne the Nazi party. He's borne the evils perpetuated against women, specifically in this country. He's, he's borne the abuse, the traffic, the ugliness, the complacency, the natural disasters, all the hate, all the time, for, forever, all over the world. And he's done all this so that you would never feel alone. That he could be with you in those moments. You go, I, you know what it feels like. How powerful is it when you're going through something, you have a friend you can call, I know what this feels like. You've had this happen too. I can call you. That's who we get to go to with Jesus. I can call him. I can go to him. You may have heard it said this before that you are, you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but you're more loved and cherished than you ever dared hope. I hope you believe that. that yes, I'm more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe, but at the same time, I'm more loved and cherished than I ever dare hope that he loves me that much. And that's how we respond to the hate. Believing in the loving grace of Jesus. And that's how we don't give up hope. Because that God works in spite of us, for us, and yet he still chooses to use us and the church. We need grace to challenge others and the world, but we need to do it in grace. Without a shred of superiority. Because Christians have hope for everybody. Christians don't give up on anybody. And so this week, the call for you is to be criminals of kindness, not looking to get into trouble, but looking how to love radically, even if it means we get into trouble. Let me pray for us.